I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to episode two of Old Brother. In this episode, we'll be speaking to someone who, as well as being a successful musician, is also a Grammy-nominated and gold disc earning producer, who's known for working extensively with Billy Bragg and the Smiths. More relevantly for this show, he worked with the Fall Off and On for much of their existence, both as live soundman and as producer, starting with Dragnet in 1979. Okay, this is episode two of Old Brother, the Fall uh, podcast with me and the legendary Stephen Hanley, and this is the first one we've got where we've got an actual guest today. Now, I was, I, Steve, you need to be careful here, because this guy's very shy, so if it, yeah, yeah, well, let him I get a word in Edgeway. Yeah, because you, you don't say a lot. Encourage him to speak, because you don't get a lot of talk out of this guy. So, so without further ado, I'll introduce it, and here he is, Mr Grant Cunliffe Showbiz of this parish. How are you, Grant? Are you OK? I'm all right, I'm all right. How's it going up there in the north? Yeah, we're still, you know, we're still there getting out of the bath to have a pest, you know. We're, we're doing all right, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it must have been a bit weird for you at the moment, this. Uh, we just about, uh, without getting yeah, out there and playing I mean, live. You know, I mean, I, I have to say that I, I've been pretty much living off all the cancelled tickets that I bought to go to shows. And they've all been gradually coming back to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, so we're supposed to, to talk about the fall then, really. So, the first thing I was going to ask you, Grant is how you got into the this world of show that we call show business. You, you started off with Gong, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to be um, around sort of at the very beginning of the um, the first bands that I kind of followed with Bowie. And I, I was around in that sort of period just pre-Ziggy Stardust when Bowie was wow. about to break big. And so um, he, he, he did a lot of live gigs around where I lived, which is Hemel Hempstead, Dunstable, Aylesbury. He seemed to keep coming back out to those venues and playing them and indeed bringing people like Lou Reed out with him and stuff like that. So I got a bit of a a taste for that. And, um, of course, in those days, he already had his bodyguard, who I think was called Stu, which is a fantastic thing to have because there weren't that many people at the gigs, but he had a bodyguard. (laughs) um, But, you know, we got to meet... 
we got to meet me and my my best mate who become involved with the the woman who was running the Bowie fan club. We right. got to meet Bowie a few times and you know get some glitter off him and some drumsticks off Woody and all that kind of shebang. <laughs> and so getting a little bit of a a taste for you know breaking whatever they call it that that wall between the performer and the right. attendee. And um and then in the midst of all this, Gong came along. It's a big a bit of a leap. Yeah, a bit, but what I'm saying is that I was probably listening to Bowie and Gong at the same time, and I'd, and I'd made the sort of contact with Bowie. So when Gong came along, the idea of then going off back after the gig and saying hello to them right, right. was much easier. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that they did, and they did a really interesting thing because obviously, um, Durrell David and particularly Lou Reed definitely kept us at arm's length. You know, they were happy to chat, but they weren't, you know, they weren't going to put their arm around you and give you a cuddle. I remember with Lou Reed, I had the, he was touring with a band called The Tots. Right. It were very short lived, kind of post New York Dolls. It was probably exactly the same time as the New York Dolls band. And um, I remember handing over the first Lou Reed solo album to have it autographed by Lou. And um, I get he and he handed it back, and I said no, um, no, I want the tots, I want the tots autographs as well. So he was kind of a bit grumpy about that. <laughs> grabbed, grabbed the album out of my hands and wrote the tots on it and gave it back to me. Bloody hell! So you know, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't that friendly. Oh. But of course, dear old Gong got chatting to them again, probably after a gig at Aylesbury, and it turned out that they lived in Oxford. Right. And, uh, you know, in those days, I was hitchhiking to, you know, I would hitchhike to the gigs and hitchhike back again. And I was sort of like, well, I'm off to hitchhike. Now, they said, oh, we'll give you a lift. We're going that way. Right. So, you know, from meeting these these kind of amazingly strange, bizarre people, Yeah. very quickly, they kind of said, oh, do you want a hand? And um, we'll go back. And then so, and then I kind of, so I got to know the farm that Verge, because Virgin were... You've got to remember that Gong and Mike Oldfield were the first releases. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Virgin had as much idea that it would be Gong that would make their millions as it would be Mike Oldfield would make their millions. So they were being quite, they were looking after their artists quite a lot. So they had a, um, a farm in Whitney, right. which is where um, the uh, wonderful conservative MP who took us out of the common market lived, <laughs> his name escapes me at the moment. But, um, so it's quite a common market. But a, a groovy little farm, and and therefore I then suddenly started doing regular trips up and down the country to see Gong and getting to know them pretty well. And you know, Virgin would hire a coach, and we'd go out with. Wow. Sometimes we went out with uh, Kevin Coyne. We went out with uh, Hatfield and the North. We went out with a film of um, Tubular Bells at one point. I remember, and so I was just—I was getting pretty matey with the with the band. And yeah. then somewhere along the line, they well, were you helping them out this time? Were you roadie in? So no, 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 I wasn't roadie. No, no, no. I was merely the guy backstage. You know, I turn up for the sound checks and give my incredibly valid opinion uh, about how the gig had went. I can remember very clearly uh, going backstage and everyone would be moaning about how bad the gig was. And I'd be like, it was the best gig I've ever seen. (laughs) But, you know, I was was hitchhiking up to Sheffield and things like that. So I wasn't doing anything to do with them. But And eventually I got wind, and I don't quite know how this happened, but there was a guy from here and now who was then being sort of 
trained up by Steve as a kind of roadie. Steve Hillage, that was And me. that was what, what happened. Yeah, Steve Hillage. So he kind of, the guy who was doing it, who was called Twink, but isn't the guy who plays drums in the Pink Fairies, <laughs> but is a synthesizer player who played with um, with Here and Now. Yeah, not the famous sort of, Twink. No, not he's the, he's the, he's the less famous Twink. <laughs> um, and um, always been, the you know, the bane of his life, really. But um, <laughs> I ended up being told, and I don't know how this happened. Maybe it was just Steve told me this guy, you know, Steve, Steve and Miquette, who I got quite friendly with and I was hanging with and often sleeping at, you know, I was often sleeping at the farm right. by then uh, and then getting up the next morning and hitchhiking home if we, if we got home really late. I mean, you know, we were doing things like we'd go, because the Manor Studio was just around the corner, so often we'd turn up and get back from a gig in Sheffield or wherever and uh, go to the Manor House recording studios and just literally eat them, eat the entire contents of their fridge and then carry on back to the <laughs> farm in Whitney. Um, but yeah, Steve sort of said, oh, this guy's gone, do you fancy coming along? And I suppose this was probably, I want to say it's after Fish Rising, it was either during Fish Rising being, which is the first Steve Hedges solo album, certainly before the second album because Steve started teaching me how to how stereos worked and right. how to solder things and, uh, and in fact I learned more about the technical side <laughs> of music and I was better at it then than I've ever been since <laughs> it's, all, well, I mean, it's all gone now he was quite the My teacher wasn't he Steve Village I mean he's a good a hell of a producer does some stuff yeah he, he, he went on to do some amazing stuff and he did you know he had a very he could explain electronics to me and he was very patient with things and um and then eventually, when they were going to do the second album with Todd Rundgren yeah. um, in America, L, yeah, um, they had to move. They were that, by that time they'd kind of split from Gong, and they were moving their stuff out of um, out of Whitney. And I had a I had a basement in my family house, and they wanted to stash a lot of gear there and then pick it up when they came back. So I then, you know, they then transported all their gear over to my house. They went off to America, and I was very pleased with that because Todd Rungan was up with them, was someone I really loved. Yeah. And, um, and then, then they came back, and I think around about 76, yeah, 76 was the first actual gig I did with Steve. I mean, it was great. Pre that, I'd been, I'd been working out of Virgin Management and sort of helping to sort of get the players that were going to be in Steve's band. So Steve had a list of people like Mitch Mitchell from Jimi Hendrix, uh, Jimi Hendrix, a series of bass players, a series of synthesizer players. And they signed, they kind of took me down to Robert Wyatt's cottage somewhere down in the West Country, which is where they moved to. And then they got me in. Uh, they got in a synthesizer player who had a called Basil Brooks who had a house in Notting Hill Gate. So I was staying there and I was going in every day to Virgin Management and phoning up people like, you know, Clive Bunker from, from uh, Jethro Tull and saying, do you fancy coming and doing an audition with Blue, uh, with um, Steve Hidge? Yeah. And, you know, getting a date together. Same thing with Mitch Mitchell. We took over a, a rehearsal room that was called Manticore in Fulham Road, which is a huge old cinema. And I have uh, incredible memories of Mitch Mitchell coming down and obviously being a little bit spacey and probably <laughs> a little bit too jazzy for what what Steve yeah. wanted. But then when they'd done the audition, Mitch Mitchell then sat at the drum kit 
and probably played drums by himself for about two hours. Oh, I great. just sat in the room <laughs> listening wow. to him. It was like a little bit like I thought, oh, he hasn't got a drum kit anymore. Yeah. And he hasn't got anywhere to play. <laughs> and he just wants to have a good time. You yeah. know, but it was quite quite an awesome thing. So it was really weird. So here I was. Can't have been very old. Was, How old were you I then? was 19. Bloody and hell. I was already kind of, you know, phoning up all these people that, you know, like the synthesizer player from Arthur Brown's Kingdom Come or whoever these people were. And yeah. gradually we put together a band. I mean, Steve chose, you know, Steve and Mick Hetcher chose all the band members eventually. And um, and then we played our first... And who was the drummer then? It was Clive Bunker. Right. Okay. We ended up with Clive Bunker from um, from Jethro Tull, who was, you know, who was, he just, they just needed that thud. But it was weird things like my mate ended up, my mate who played in the sort of, sub prog band um in Hemel Hempstead ended up being the main keyboard player and uh-huh. it, you know it was, it was and, and my my friend Christian Boulay who was a, a an acquaintance I'd met via Gong who was a sort of well-known French guitarist who I'd been staying with in Paris he ended up as the guitarist so it was kind of did you ever pay any bleeding rent you between the eight years of 1970 and 1990 <laughs> Sorry, say that again. Did you ever pay any rent in these in those twenty years? You seem to be staying with someone no, every no, night. No, I wasn't. No, no, I was. I mean, I was squatting the entire time. It was very, very. Um, you know, I was squatting up till midway through the Smiths period. I reckon I was still squatting in eighty six, wow. which would have been yeah. the end of the Smiths period. Or yeah, maybe, maybe I remember going to that squat of yours. Yeah, it was pretty good actually. It's nice. Yeah, yeah, no. So they were—they were. I mean, they were—they were high. They were like high-level squats, and it was well organised. And um, you know, it was—it was—it was an easy, well, a relatively. E- I look back at it now and think it was quite an easy life, you know. So the first ever professional thing that I did was I'd gone to university, and Steve had gone off to see Todd Rundgren, and there was a reunion of Gong, who had then split up right. um, in Paris. And I was living in Brighton as I dropped out of university. So I guess this is, I want to say, 75. Somehow, and I don't quite know how this happened, I ended up stage managing the whole event. And also, also we put on a coach trip from England right. um, uh, to go to the gig. So they were like... I don't know, 50 people paid us, I don't know, however much to go to this, to, to go to this gig. And then I ended up being, having never done it in my life, being the stage manager for this gig where, like, you know, 20 different bands played and it yeah. went over time. It was, it was so French. It went over time by hours and hours. <laughs> and um, I think our coach, the coach that we booked, sort of left two hours before the show actually finished. Bloody hell. So I'd had a little bit of taste of that. But eventually... Um, Steve Hillage did his first ever gig with this band, supporting Queen, I want to say September 76, in a free gig at Hyde Park. I had a bit of a, an epiphany at um, at the Hyde Park gig. A, that, that you know, there's a huge amount of people, and it was kind of pretty exciting to be backstage and part of all of that. But also, um, during the Queen gig, so, you... so I decided to go out to the mixing desk on yep. a bit of a whim, having realised that, you know, mixing desks were interesting and the people there were great for the Queen gig, having finished 
the Steve Hillage gig. And I think there is a there's a version of It's All Too Much by the Beatles oh, from yeah. Hyde in 1976, which is which is the only song that Steve Hillage's band were recorded and videoed for then. And I went out after that to see Queen yeah. and to see what it was like and sounded like from the mixing deck. And um, there were kind of like quite a lot of techie people out there sort of running around and looking at things and poking at them. And, and then Brian Humphreys, who I believe is the, na- is the name of the sound engineer for Queen at that time, and he was doing a lot of other bands as yeah. well, turned up. And he was obviously a little bit squiffy. Something was making him wobble. And um, when he did turn up, everyone was very excited and they started telling him about the, comp- you know, the uh, delay times and the compression ratios and whether the 557 was working on all these kind of things. And he kind of looked round at everybody slightly wide-eyed and pointed at his ears while they were telling him all this and said, I've got these. <laughs> and um, it was a kind of, it was at that moment, you know, like a lightning bolt from the sky where I suddenly thought, oh, I, you know, all he's using here is his opinions and his ears. Right. And I've got those. I've got both of those. You you know, and that maybe, (laughs) I think there was a little inkling, nothing concrete, but a little inkling that I might do something like that. Right. Right, so we've done 40 minutes. We've barely got you out of your teens here. We must get on to to the fall at some point. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really sorry. No, it's great. No, that's, no, that's no, quite no, all right. That's great. That's great. So, oh, so, all right. So then, so then, obviously, you with Steve Village in America, you end up working with Here and Now, presumably. Well, well, yeah, what happened was um, I went and licked my wounds and uh, went to Brighton and dropped out of university. We hung out in Brighton and we'd crossed Steve Hillage and Miquette and myself had met here and now in the summer of 76 and they'd been, we'd gone down to a free festival called Megan Fair and it was pretty much a disaster. No one seemed better to get into the, in, in, we did some jamming with them, but it didn't seem, it seemed to be a little bit of a problem of people choosing the correct key to play. And I got a real, you know, I went away uh, thinking, okay, they're a bit, they're a bit loose. And, you mm-hmm. know, Steve, Steve and Miquette, aren't loose, they're tight. They, you know, they might seem loose to other people, but compared to here and now, they're, yeah. they're super tight <laughs> and they know what they're doing. Somewhere along the line, they came down to... I think I went off to a festival. I think I went off to a festival and a very tiny festival. In those days, here and now, were kind of like a fest, festival-only band. They didn't really do proper gigs. Yeah. And we were at somewhere called Trentishire, which is, I think, in northern Cornwall. And there were maybe, I want to say, 200 people there. And I went along, I I think, as a punter. And in those days, a festival didn't have anything that we think of as a festival now. It was just a bunch of people in tents. Yeah. And literally, you know, they'd be waiting for Here and Now to turn up, and then Here and Now would turn up, and then they'd sit around for a week. Yeah. And and they'd maybe do a gig if someone had built a stage and got a, a generator by then. So, <laughs> and somehow I just got, you know, having done the Steve Hillage thing, I was a little bit like, well, I'll go and set the drums up and then I'll carry the bass and prog that in and then I'll, I'll put the, you know, I'll put the amplifier on stage and then I'll talk to the, yeah. to the band and say, maybe you want to do a gig, you know, and, 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 they, and, and, they, and they eventually would decide to do a gig on a full moon or something like yeah. that. And then over that, over that week or two weeks, whatever it was, individually, they all sort of came up to us and said, do you want to, you know, you can clearly 
do you want to be part of the band? And I was like, oh my God, they're, you know, having been discarded by my first love, um, suddenly yeah. he was the chance to do something else. And um, I think there and then I got back on the bus and went into West London and uh, started squatting with them. You know, they were all around an area called Frestonia, which was allegedly a, you know, a free area of like, of, of, of London that had declared itself independent of, of the UK. Yeah. A bit like a passport to Pimlico. Pimlico, yeah. <laughs> right. and, there, and there I was suddenly... Um, with a bunch of people who desperately needed organising and who, unbelievably, I probably had more, you know, with my little bit of knowledge and very loud voice, had a little bit more organising abilities than they all had. And so they kind of let me tell them what to do. Right. See, well, I, I always think when, you know, when you, obviously you started in the... I always thought that you were with Here and Now for ages before the punk thing happened, but it was pretty contemporaneous, really. It wasn't about the same time, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think we're talking 77. I'd met them in 76, but really we were touring, you know, with the punk version of, of Gong, which called Planet Gong, which yeah. was basically here and now, plus David Allen and Jilly Smythe, who right. were the original creators of Gong. And so we were doing a kind of, yeah, a kind of punk thing. So, um, and I can remember very clearly um, hearing the Sex Pistols yeah. and uh, this revolutionary new punk thing. And I have to remember that Steve Hillage said to me, it's a 12 bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, this, what, is this the revolutionary thing? Yeah. It's a 12 bar blues. And I was a little bit like, oh, okay, I like the words, but yeah, he's right. And I remember listening to... Uh, at the end of the um, of the Planet Gong tour, we were in France, and someone put on the Damned album. So that would have been right. December '76. Yeah, is that right? I don't know. I've got my time. My time is a little bit out, but but yeah. So I mean, we were pretty much started doing the Planet Gong punk thing in '77, and then what happened was myself and the drummer from here and now. We've been watching all that because the punk thing happened all around us. You know, yeah. see. Clash. Yeah, well, you were, yeah, you must have been right in the middle of all that. Going yeah, on. we were in West London, so we could see, yeah. you know, we knew we we'd heard the damn first album. I guess that's the end of '77. Is it? I don't know. Probably a bit um, earlier than that. I think. But very early '78, we went and saw alternative uh, alternative TV in the Hundred Club. Right. They were just astonishing. Mark Perry was brilliant. They did that thing where they let the audience come up and talk oh, during the song. So which good. Is used, used Alternatives. The, the, the Images Cracked yeah. album, that amazing first album by Alternative TV, which seems to have sort of slipped out of view when it's actually one of the great records of that I, year. I, not think I, could quote, I could quote that probably pretty much word for word. I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a bunch of Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> We've given you a platform and look, what have you done? You started a fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See all I get from you is fucking Coronation Street. <laughs> 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 Looks a great Good album. Song. Brilliant album. And of course, you know, what you've got to realise is that his record label. Um, Mark Perry's record label, Rough Trade Records, were literally about a half mile from where I was squatting. Right. So I 
then took it upon myself to contact Mark and say, hey, you know, we've got a PA, we've got a band, we're doing free tours, but we really like this punk thing. Would you like to come and do a tour with Here and Now? And he was very up for it, and uh, we did some work with him. But then he did a great thing, which is he... Can I just ask you, John? Yeah. What was, why was it free? Uh, because we thought that we uh, what was interesting was up until then I had a trajectory as a as a um, as a hippie turning into a sort of punk which was that you know the huge revolution in the 60s which I was sort of mm. you know old enough to take on and believe in um, and then the whole political side of that and you've got to remember there were things like the angry brigade were blowing up beavers in fashion shops in, in London and Baden-Meinhof was going bazonkers in Germany and uh, uh, Brigada Rosa yeah. uh, in Italy were going. So, I, I, you know, I could see a trajectory of, of revolution and then moving into um, punk that things were just going that way. So the whole free thing was the idea that money was going to, you know, that banks were going to dissolve and that money would become pointless and that we'd just exchange things with each, with each other. And money, money was the root of all evil. So mm. that yeah. was the planning behind it. And then, that you know, that we would then go and say to people at the end of the gig, if you think this is a good idea, can you give us some money to get to the next, pay for petrol to get to the next gig and also to buy ourselves food yeah. and tar strings and stuff. So that was the way it was done. We were asking people to donate rather than putting people on the spot. And also, of course, it was a perfect, without realising it, it was a perfect sell because in those days, we would, I would phone up social secretaries at the university and say, we want to come put on something to, to entertain your students for nothing. And yeah. of course they said yes, you know, so we were doing like 30, 40 day tours up and down major venues. You know, we did things like Leeds University where they did live at Leeds yeah. and things like that. So, and of course, they didn't realise that we were. So, and what would so what were the clubs getting? Because I remember seeing, well, the four with we're there now for the first time at small clubs, one in Liverpool, right, one in, in Oldham, and things like that. Well, Oldham, they, would just, yeah. they would take the Tower Club. They would take it and Eric's and things yeah. like that. They were just taking the bar. Bar, yes, well, right. Oh, was it, was it, they, were, they, they were quids in because they weren't they weren't getting, having to pay any fee, you know. Yeah. Mm. So was it economically viable then, just about? Or uh, it was, yeah. It kind. I mean, I had to run a very tight ship, and there were often moments where I was surrounded by like fourteen very hungry band members and saying, "No, we've got to save the money for the petrol fare," you know. Yeah. But yeah, it worked. I mean, we were we were all signing on, so in those days, you know, we, there was a little bit of money coming from us as well. But people would give us food and things like that. Yeah. I do remember one week where we. We literally lived for a week on homemade jam. Christ. Not, there was no brick. That was, that was a pretty story. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rock and roll dream, that, isn't it? Rit large. Who made the jam? Who made the jam? Who made the jam? When you said you'd been on tour with the jam, I didn't know that was what jam. you meant. Would you like, like yeah. We'll take the jam, man. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been a tricky sell to the, to Mark E. Smith and Kay Carroll, that free gig malarkey. 
Well, it was well, the whole thing was that they were so. I mean, the thing you've got to remember that Mark and Kay were basically hippies, you know. I mean, as yeah. much as everyone wants to rewrite that thing, Mark had long hair, didn't he? Yeah. Kay thought was a super yeah. hippie. What happened was, you know, Mark Perry played us the unreleased version, paid me and Keith Keith, the drummer from the Here and Now band, played us the unreleased. So we're going to put this out in a couple of months to see what you think. And it was, you know, Bingo Masters Breakout and Repetition. Yeah. And, of course, in those heady days, having, you know, having seen Bowie and then met him, having seen Gong and then become part of the band and having seen Mark Perry and then got him to come on tour. So it seemed really obvious to go, oh, give us the phone number of that of that group before. Yeah. And we'll phone them up and ask them if they want to do some gigs, you know. Yeah. Because you were, you know, the four weren't doing that many gigs then, you know. We we had a sort of, and we were saying, you know, we can't pay you anything, but we've got a PA and I'll do mm-hmm. the sound for it. And Kay and Mark was super, yeah, super friendly, yeah. Um, and you know, certainly, I'm trying to think the first time I saw the fall. I reckon it might have been some early, early '78. I think definitely they supported Susie and the Banshees at the Greyhound. Yes, yeah, yeah which is a great. Dreadful, dreadful little gig. Um, <laughs> and, and they were brilliant and stunning. I can remember taking people down to see them. So whether I knew, whether it was just on the basis of Bingo Masters Breakout or whether I'd, whether I'd seen some gigs up north as well, I don't know. So I, I, I have some vague memory that it wasn't the first gig, but I know that for sure I saw that gig. And so, you know, I have no memory of the Susie, what Susie did at all with the Banshees. Yeah. But... Um, just being completely blown away by the fall, I just thought they were astonishing, you know. Yeah. And I think that was probably they still had that weird bass player. Eric, sure. yeah, I was just remembering that. Yeah, Eric was in the band. I think what they did, because I was at that gig, and I think what they did was a similar sort of thing. I think they hired a coach, charged a few people, you know, a five. Oh, really? Yeah, and me and Craig and Mark Riley were one of them, were three of them people, yeah. Oh wow! But going down That's on a right. there was a bit of there was a bit of people from up north, right? Yeah. How how interesting! Exactly what the Smiths did when I first saw the Smiths as well. They'd have uh, a you know a coach load of people coming down from Manchester to their gigs. Right? How yeah. weird is that? Yeah. What a weird he goes round and round. The the were on the coach. Oh really? As well? Yeah. Wow. They're on the coach with the people. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a good business that... model, isn't it? Well, it is. Yeah. yeah. So they get their coach and the transport free, and they yeah, people get to go to London and see the gig. Yeah. Good idea. And then, you know they hadn't done that many gigs up till then, had they? I mean they'd done maybe a couple in Manchester. You know there wasn't a lot of it wasn't like they were gigging a lot. And so we were saying, okay, you know we'll extend your uh, reach. Yeah. And uh, and you won't have to pay a penny to do it. You know. And uh, yeah, Kay and Mark were totally up for it. Love their little hearts. And we we were kind of, I suppose here and now. If we had somewhere that was big, then one of the pla- one of our big places was Manchester. So we were in Manchester a lot of the time. So I got to you know go round to the flat really early on, and you know we were always eating it on the eighth day. I love that on the eighth day. <laughs> Still there? Yeah, and then I guess by the end of '78, you know, somewhere towards I don't think maybe the middle of '78, they started doing the here and now gigs with us. You know, right. for the full day. And that's how you did the sound for the fall, then, was it? That's how you. Yeah, got yeah, because you know, uh, you know. Uh, Nobody got 
nobody really got the fall, you know, they didn't understand it at all. And I told, you know, I, I was like, oh God, I totally understand this. This is, makes absolute sense to me, you know. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit like I felt that Carl had the structure and everyone else kind of diddled around him, you yeah. know. And as long as Carl kind of like finished the song, they all finished the song at the same time. Yeah. But it was, you yeah. know, I mean, you, you know what it was like, Steve. It was a, it was yeah. astonishing, wasn't it? That, I mean, the fall were astonishing. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were so good live with that. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, Mark, you know, Mark, you know, it's it, it almost like Mark had too many ideas, you know, he, he just trying to get them out. Yeah. So you were just in you know, there being absolutely bamboozled by not only the words, but the music, because the music was so strange and weird. Yeah. And didn't seem to have any precedence. It wasn't punk thrash. Not at all, no. Not at all, no. I don't know, you know, maybe thinking now, maybe it had a little bit of television in it, all that spiky lines from yeah. Martin. But I mean, Martin was such an interesting guitarist and even Paulette was such a a fantastically strange keyboard player, you know, so it was all... Mm. I don't I don't think I ever saw the original. Una. Una. Una, yeah, although I... Maybe she... I certainly met her, so maybe I did see her in the gigs. But I think well, no, she, I mean, she didn't disappear when she left. She was obviously... Her and, her and Martin were an item. So she was She was still hanging around, even after she'd gone. Yeah, yeah, maybe that was yeah. it. Maybe I just saw her hanging around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a very friendly bunch in them. They, that's what Martin was saying. There was an interview with him recently. He said they were, they were like a collective, weren't they, the fall then? Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, the thing was... Because, I mean, I think even... And I think that lasted um, for a long time with, uh, with with you and Steve as well, Paul. Because I mean, I think that it was it was almost like you were pinching yourself that you were involved. You know, we were involved in this absolutely astonishing band. I mean, yeah. I was just like, oh my god. Yeah, definitely. You know, we, we were talking. Me and Paul, well, Paul, Paul were talking about the last time when we were saying that though that. Uh, the first time I met Mark, it was when we went to see The Passage, and it was the ex, uh, formed by the ex, first ex-bass player, and then they'd already gone through another keyboard player, and then they'd already gone through another bass player, mm. two bass players, and why would you want to get involved with this? Yeah, yeah, the, the writing was on the wrong. Yeah. When well, they're going through so, so many I new mean, dishes, no, why would you want to get involved with this? But we still did. I know, but the thing was, I mean, how you know how how blessed were we? What would what would our lives yeah. be like yeah. if we had yeah. that? You know, I mean, I'm Not just. Astonished by, it. although at the time it just seemed really natural and just seemed for the next thing to do. And it wasn't as if the the the, the leaving. It didn't seem that traumatic. People leaving. No, me. no, no. Leave. Well, apparently, I, something I found out recently was Martin taught Craig how to, what, how to play the songs. I know. I saw that. Isn't yeah. that weird? Isn't it just? So, yeah. There wasn't a lot of you know anger and no and. Uh, you know, I'm never talking to you again going on there. I mean, I seem to remember them, you know, often you might, like you say, you'd see, I'd see them at different, you know, you'd see them at the gigs as well. So, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Martin came to sit when we played Rafters just after I joined. Martin came and said he really enjoyed it. I was like, this is Martin, but I couldn't believe it. And he was yeah. saying, oh, I thought I was really good. But yeah, no, I think it was a lot friendlier then. They were like, because they were like a gang, weren't they? The original Fall. Well, absolutely, and it, and it always felt like that, you know, it always felt like that, but then I suppose, I mean, pretty much, 
you know, you could say the same thing for Gong and you could say the same thing for here and now. I mean, it, it's one of those things where it's only afterwards that you realise how, how extraordinary all of that was, yeah. you know, because mm -hmm. it just seemed like natural. It just seemed to be something that happened, you know. Yeah. Uh, especially with the fog, because there was not all airs and graces or pretense of being anything yeah. that you weren't. No, no, exactly. And also there was no, um, you know, no one, it, it fitted in with the gong, dare I say it, the gong and the here and now thing, because no one was trying to make an alternative TV as well. No one was trying to make it big. No. No trying to have success. They were, it was all about, and this sounds a mm. bit po-paced, but it was all about creating art. You know, there was no career ideas about it. No, you know, I wasn't thinking, I mean, I thought the whole bloody world was going to end oh, yeah. within the next five years. You know what I mean? The idea of having a career was... No. Well, I mean, there was never an idea that it would last that... You know, that the fact that it kind of still astonishes me that it's still selling that stuff that we made in 1980. People are still buying it. I mean, the, the idea of that at the time was just nonsense, wasn't no. it? Yeah, no, I always think back to, I mean, the, the thing about uh, making Dragnet was, of course, you know, was one of Mark's absolutely crazy mad idea, you know, literally an absolutely insane idea. Maybe, I think sometimes maybe he thought I'd, I'd made Gong albums or I'd, you know, I'd produced Steve Hillage records or something. I don't know where all that came from. But he, because I obviously, I was a sympathetic ear and I understood what they were doing, got me into Dragnet and... Um, you know, so you'd never you'd never produced in a studio before Dragnet. I'd been I'd been in a studio and I'd had my opinions, but my opinions had been pretty much turned down because we'd made give and take by here and now. Then and also <laughs> I put no. I put out a um, and it was very much overridden by the studio engineer. Anything I said, right? And um, and then not a lot of give and take then. <laughs> not a lot of give and take. Very little give and take at all. In fact, it was although I still. Um, I still speak to the engineer now. It's interesting. I, we, I, you know, it, those, the water has gone under the bridge, and he's a nice guy. But um, and I'd also done uh, the "What You See Is What You Are" but split, the live album, album with, with ATV, with alternative one. TV, which was just my live tapes. Yeah. Uh, put onto uh, a record, so I'd done a bit of stuff, but I didn't, really, you know, I still don't really know very much. But you know that. In that thinking that, you know, that I think Mark paid me 200 quid for Dragnet. Right. That's literally, you know, maybe you put, maybe you didn't get paid that, Steve. But, I, I you know, I, that, was, that, was, that, was all, that was all the money I ever saw from Dragnet. And, you know, I literally, I, I, I travel the world and everywhere I go, Dragnet is for sale. I, you know, I sort of think, oh, yeah, it's interesting. If I'd had, the, if I'd had a royalty, yeah, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder what it'd be like now. But, but you know... You know, just amazing that suddenly, um, again, I had a career and it's down to Mark. You know, that, yeah. you know, Steve Hillage probably got me into the business, but Mark was the guy who gave, again, through a completely mad idea. And I've been at the wrong end, as I'm sure we all have, but at the wrong end of some of Mark's really mad ideas. But this particularly really mad idea, Get Grant in to produce that second album, yeah. meant that suddenly my name was attached to a number one indie album as yeah. a producer. You know, and of course, clearly people love it, you know, yeah. the way it's... Oh, yeah, obviously, there are people who hate it, but there are people who've, who've been trying to find me all their lives to make, you know, make that record again, which, of course, I don't do, but... no. It, it gave me, uh, you know, because I wouldn't, have, I would, 
I would never have um, got involved with the Smiths without that because Morrissey knew me because my name was on a, a full record. Yeah. And and Johnny and Andy had been to Here and Now gigs in Manchester. So they, they and they'd seen me as I used right. to do in those days, harassing so the you, band. You were doing the sound for us when they supported us, though, weren't you? I think. Yes. That, yeah, 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 yeah. The electric ballroom. That's right. Yeah, no, no, I did the sound for both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So then you then you started up your own studio, didn't you? Then after Dragnet. That that's right. You yeah, took that two hundred pounds and parlayed it into a state of the art studio. <laughs> yeah, it was a state of the art studio. Do you remember the toilets? Uh, there was a hole in the ground. I, I can remember. That's I don't remember right. an actual cement, toilet. A cement hole in the ground, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. I remember it well. <laughs> I mean, that, that was another classic thing. You know, we were looking, myself and Keith, Keith Keith had decided to leave the Here and Now band by then. We were, you know, you could see that everyone was releasing records by themselves. And also that, you know, there weren't a lot of studios that, that actually understood what was going on. So and we clearly thought we did. So, yeah, with, a, with the help of Dave the Slave, who was a Here and Now roadie, we kind of built a studio in a squatted basement. That was a just such a wonderful moment for me because obviously having built this weird little studio and having had the dragnet experience which had been a little bit like okay i'm somewhere else and i've got real i've got a real you know almost steve albini-esque desire to make this record with as little reverb as possible and all the other things and not use any studio trickery to then suddenly build a studio and be able to start building the reverb so i wanted to use the reverb because i built the bloody thing yeah you know, by, you know which was a you know it was a, a plate reverb it was a metal sheet yeah yeah about two meters long by a meter tall Not an emt <laughs> suspended on elastic bands and then you know a microphone at one end and a speaker at the other so it's, you know insane yeah it's such an easy thing to do you know i didn't know how those things were made so to have got that and then to squeeze you all into the room. <laughs> Do you remember how small that room Yes. I still have nightmares. Still get claustrophobia. And there was no air conditioning or anything, was there? No. I think, I think we did buy a sort of air conditioning unit that we kind of stuck somewhere, but I don't think we've done it by the time we did, did it with you guys. But yeah, no, wonderful. Eight track, two inch tape. Oh, jumpers for goalposts. <laughs> <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but the desk was in a van outside. No, that's later on. That's what we call street level oh, two. That's where we did wings. That's right. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. 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 But the yeah, but I mean, it's it's so. I mean, it's a long, long time ago, Steve. Mm. You know, what I mean, the fact that you know we know who each other are is is is, is, is I. Mean, that's a, you know, I mean, I recognise you. I know who you are. Yeah, and it's only because I built the fucking thing that I know it was like there. Yeah. You know, now we had it. We, because, uh, yeah, it was a squatty building and um, we turned up and John the Bicycle, who had the bicycle shop upstairs, uh, we knocked up <laughs> to the, you know, you've, you know, we know you've got a, a basement downstairs that's not being used. And he said, yeah, have you got 500 quid? And we went, okay, yeah, I think we have got 500 quid. We went up and borrowed 500 quid and it turned out that um, he was about to have his legs broken because he owed someone 500 quid. So that was it. We never paid any other rent at all. And I thought we were there for two years or three years. No, not good for somebody with a bicycle shop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if he actually sold any bicycles. I mean, you know, squatted bicycle shop. I, I, 
I was never aware of any bicycles being sold, but at least it might, you know, it gave me something to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna. I'm, I'm desperately trying to think of something about was there a chain involved, but I can't. I can't quite. I can't quite. <laughs> you back pedal in it. Yes. Yeah. That's giving. That's that's so funny. It's giving me the arm. Oh God. So we did. I think we did pay your rates and container drivers in there. That's right, absolutely, and I think that was it. I don't think we did anything else that was then missed off. No, because what I remember about that is we did container drivers with you one day, and then we did it again the next day for appeal session. Oh well, which is just which is literally about two hundred yards down the road from where the studio. That's right, yeah. So which yeah. Is presumably was why we were we were booked into your place is because we were doing the appeal session the next oh, day. Yeah, that makes total sense. And as I say, the other thing I remember about container drivers is Mark had this nice little guitar solo, all worked out, Mark Riley. And I mean, literally just before you pressed record, Mark said, Craig, you play the guitar solo instead. And he just had to make it up on the spot. And it is the weirdest guitar solo, that thing he plays in Container Drive. But it's great. I still think, you know, uh, you know, Mark is great, but I also think that Craig is such an underrated guitarist. Really. Oh, oh, massively, yeah. 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 No, no, no one's asking the question though. Why did we just go along with that? <laughs> well, maybe, no. but, I mean, the thing was, I still thought in those days, you know, he was the genius, and it all made sense. Do you know what I mean? I think there was a. Mm. It was later on that it became deranged, and then maybe in hindsight we realised that actually some of what he demanded or asked of us, because we, we, I mean, we were still the gang then, weren't we? It was still the gang. I, I, you know, I, 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 I remember it being the secret society of the fool. I think, I think you were a bit of a, more of a crossbencher for me. It was two gangs, really. If you see, well, it kind of got to that, didn't it? Especially in Australia and. Well, yeah. I mean, but it was always a bit later, right? Australia's later than that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you say were the two gangs then? Well, there was Mark and Kay, and usually A and other. So it's very often you, or maybe Dave Tucker, sometimes, or maybe you and Dave Tucker. And Carl was always a bit a foot in both camps as well when he came along. Carl, I think the thing there was definitely a process where Carl became totally. Uh, a Mark acolyte. Yes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There was a process over the years. Yeah, but he, he like, played that double agent thing very well, though. It's like he was your mate and silly. So he, he, he had no problem with sl slagging off Mark when he was with us, and and presumably vice versa. But I mean, it worked, didn't it? I mean, again, you read these many articles about the fall, and you start, I start getting very conscious that it sounds like we're mourning all the time, which wasn't wasn't what it was really, was it? It was well, great. I mean, I, you know, I, I still have absolute... I mean, I can remember the bad times, but the bad times for me really didn't kick in, I would say, until the 90s, you know. I really don't... You know, I can remember a time around cerebral cortex, caustic, whatever it's called, mm. where things were pretty pretty deranged. But up, and, and obviously, I, drift, I drifted in and out. I was a bit of a fanboy for quite a bit of the time, you know, post-hex induction hour. But I don't remember it being horrible. I wanted to kill Carl quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was part of his appeal. <laughs> he wanted to kill me, you know, so... No, I don't remember it as being horrible either. 
Um, the only time it got hot, really horrible for me was the, the pretty much the night I left. It was was really grim. But I think. Yeah, it, but when did you? When was that? That was at the end of '84. So we did. We were, we were really on the up then. We'd signed to Beggars Banquet. There was oh, money right coming at the in. Beginning of the Beggars Banquet time. Yeah, there was money coming That's in. A the really top. bad time to go for. It was stupid, absolutely stupid. <laughs> it, was, it was mental because I went to Mark at the beginning of the tour in '84, and I basically said to him, "I'm a bit worried that if I stay much longer, I'm never going to do anything else, and this is never going to be my band." So I'm always going, which. And then he said, well, you're insane. And he was quite correct. I mean, why would you know? Why would you leave the fall to go and play in a crappy band with your mates? But that's what I did. And what happened was I said that to him at the beginning of the tour. And he said, well, you're mental. Don't do that. Stay the year and, and then see where we are then. Because, you know, money's coming in. It's going to be great. And then yeah. we got to the end of the tour and all the gear got nicked in Cardiff. I think it was in Cardiff. Oh, no, in Brighton, wasn't right, it? Brighton. It was your fault, no. wasn't it? It was my it was fault, yeah. It was in Cardiff. And then... The band's fault. In fact, it was your fault, Steve, wasn't it? Yeah. My fault, yeah. So then I thought. Uh, so then I thought. Well, if I don't go now, I'm never going because you know I've said I want to do something on my own. And if he's going to kick off this badly, if I don't go tonight, I will never go. So that was that was pretty much why I left. I mean, in a way, I can see your thinking because you know it did. It was fairly easy. The full thing. Do you know what I mean? It's, do you know what yeah. I mean? it's like okay, but you know. It wasn't like meetings about, you know, the record deal and you've all got to dress a different way. You know, things I've seen with other bands where they're like, you know, the record label's pressurising you to drop two of the band and we're going we're gonna to dress you, you know, we've got someone to dress you in these clothes. It was. Uh, we had all that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, once you, that was once you got to that, was it? Was that, that was once you got to Beggars, right? Yes. No, yes, I mean, I, I remember... Um, I mean, it happened a lot of the time throughout my time, but uh, there was always seemed to be somebody trying to persuade Mark to go solo. Why are you paying these musicians when, to sit at home? Oh, really? don't have, yeah, <coughs> from Jeff Travis to, to that guy uh, uh, who, rang, who ran Trojan Records. He just couldn't understand why Mark was paying these musicians, yeah. Wow. No, I never heard, I never realised that. Mm. It just yeah, I mean obviously Who and I knew why. <laughs> yeah. There's no point in being Mark Smith without somebody to shout at, is there? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, no, I, I know what you mean about it being easy. I didn't have to think about anything being in the fall. It was not, I didn't you know was, there was huge swathes of what people think of being in a band that I would never went anywhere near me. I never would never have dealt with a promoter. I never dealt with yeah. uh you know, booking the Abbey Road for cutting a record or when to yeah. talk to... I never did any of that. And I thought, you know... Well, that's what I'm saying. Certainly up to about... I mean, I would have thought from your perspective, I can see why you did it. Yeah. Because it's only in hindsight that I can see, you know, how remarkable the fact that the band even survived... Yeah. In a funny sort of way that the band survived to, like, you know, slates. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, you know, hexing Butcher, you know, so... It, it it seemed to me that yeah you could and in a way I think I I mean I think I, I've been lucky to carry on staggering along in that sort of way you know I never really um, I never really bounced into any of that that madness but it, it was definitely it did seem easy yeah definitely it did seem easy I mean it's you know, easy. even I mean, even Mark I mean the thing is Steve you've got 
I mean, you would know that when... I mean, the thing was, we're kind of, there must have been a point where you just stopped taking Mark seriously in the rant zone, right? Yeah. But like you say, that in the 90s, yeah? The last, yeah. I mean, that last five years I was in, it was awful. Awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that, that I can see. I can really see. I remember bumping into you a few times in London and being like at the end of my tether with it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can see. I mean, the nineties did seem. I mean, it was really. I think up to Curious Orange, it seemed like a fantastic. You know, like that was amazing. You know, to do that. Yeah, and, and even even after even after with extricate with when Martin came back, that was yeah. great. Well, after that, it just went. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, friend, I was involved in Friends Experiment, and that seemed fine. I really liked Marsha. I thought Marsha brought a really interesting energy to the whole thing, and we were doing, you know, yeah. Markle Sinkers, and there's a ghost in my house, and then mm. and then the Sergeant Pepper cover with Simon Rogers, and that that all felt great. But yeah, once I got back to sort of. As I say, it was about 95 with Cerebral mm. Course, which I think I was, at some point, I, I think I almost made Cerebral Course, and then it was taken out of my hands and only made some of my mixes were used. That felt awful, that one. It just yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, there was still, there was still, some, great, still some great stuff, though. Like, so, Gun, well, I yeah. wanted to ask you what it was like, what was it like then after, after us then? I was going to get you to know, that. Yeah, is that too early to ask that? Yeah, well, what, you, what do you mean after you guys left? So, yeah, so, so, I, no, it was it was it was really weird. It was really weird. I mean, um, because the unutterable, they'd done some stuff, and it was really basically me and Julia. Julia, that's right. It's me, Julia, and Mark. And Mark, Mark was was pretty gone by then. But I mean, so. It's it it Doctor Book's letters. I, on. Really, I mean, I saw the other musicians, but I mean, they were certainly the guitarist was was a, was a, was a, was a very damaged person, and uh, Tom Head kind of was, I think, was very cynical about it and didn't ever have that gang. Yeah, the gang mentality had kind of gone by then. I think, you know, people knew they were in for a couple of, and Mark was. It was kind of. Mark felt lost, you know. Yeah. Really, he felt lost. Well, you can't... I mean, you, you've got to, you've got to admire it. I because when I left, I thought that was there was no way it was going to carry on. Oh yeah, no, insane. I mean, you know, it, 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 there is something. Um, you know, they just found that sea slug that you can cut its head off, and the head, the yeah. head carried on living, and the body carries on living for a little bit, but then the head grows another body and they, yeah. know, they can't work out how it's how it happens mark was a little bit like that he like that. Like head off on several occasions you yeah know? but um that was when you said the guitars was that ben pritchard was that was it his first record no that he ben came a uh, ben is are oh, you are missing winner isn't he i yeah. think I, I so think... the unutterable was the welsh guy who turned up at the funeral and tried to steal a bottle of whiskey and was caught by Pamela. Oh, that sounds like a nice guy. Yeah, it sounds like a lovely guy. I thought he was Dave Bush as well, so I, I kind of like, I really blotted my copybook going going up to him saying, are you Dave Bush? He was like, no, I'm surly, nasty guitarist who hates you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not a small list, that, though, is it, to be fair? <laughs> 
but um, having said that, <clears throat> Doctor Book's letter is is brilliant. It's one of the best things I think the Fall ever did, isn't it? Oh yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, the thing was, you know, in classic fashion, he hadn't done he hadn't done the words. So I had basic tracks of most of them had been done before I turned up, but I then decided to add a lot of keyboards from Julia. They had because it was a dance studio, and really Mark wasn't focused enough to kind of really be able to understand what was going on. But he, and I was and, and because I love, I have to say that my starting point for the fall is, is Mark's words. You know, so of I really love with that. Of course. And, and so I was just coaxing out as much stuff as I could. And so that The Unutterable was the last record I ever made with Mark, where he didn't then come and fuck it up afterwards. Every other <laughs> record I made after that with him, and I made another three. Well, imp- and what about Imperial Wax Sovereign? That's a great album. Yeah, but I have you heard my version? I don't think I have, no. Is it better? There's a ver- it's called the, uh, in, in, you know, it's called the uh, the Britannia Road Sessions. Okay. What they t- I think what they did was they kept my vocal comps. So that was the thing, because I could, uh, because I loved Mark's words, because, you know, it, it, to a lot of people, it just didn't make sense. And so they didn't know, they couldn't tell where... You know, where since this madness started and inspired genius stops. So yeah. they literally a lot of the time I think on the records I'm not involved with, there's kind of unedited and unloved kind of vocals. And I at that point I was doing a I always think about um Miles Davis in his later period where they were taking things like uh Ted Maceo, right. something like that, which was the was the producer or engineer and he he did things like I think on Bitches Brew, like he took a solo and then dropped it in four or five times and made it a chorus right. in, the, in the song, you know, as a motif. Yeah. And so I felt I was doing that with Mark's vocals. I was taking ideas he might only have done once and saying, actually, this is brilliant. And, you know, well, I find it that. was like that. Yeah. The shards kind of wouldn't coalesce, but I could get the shards to coalesce to use one of his quote one of his lyrics. I could see what he was trying to do. Right. And what they did with Imperial Wax Solvent, I think, is they took my vocal comps, which made sense largely, and then redid all the music or went back to. I don't know what they did. I right. mean, it was you know. Okay. I mean, I'm really proud of Imperial Wax Solvent, and I'm also really excited about the fact that my version of Remix, which has got like. Six songs they didn't use, well. you know, coming out. So, you know, what's it coming out? I was just going to ask you that. They're going to is that, will any of this stuff see the light of day then? Well, Imperial Wax Solvent has been released with, although I'm not even sure if I get a mention on the bloody. <laughs> just come now. Oh, I can't see it. Uh, the Britannia Rose sessions, but that the Britannia Rose sessions are. I can't quite work out if they're rough mixes or if it's actually the final cut. Someone got the final cut that I made because it was that classic thing, you know, where I had, to, I, I had to go to Australia and I was like, Mark, this is a brilliant record. Really don't fuck it up. Please, please don't fuck it up. Don't do something stupid because he'd done that to the real new Fallout right? So I'd done it as Country on the Click. All right. And, and then he'd gone back and I thought made a much worse record because there's, there's a really psychedelic version of the real new Fall album. Yeah. Which is pre, pre, it's kind of follows on from Unutterable. I'm using lots of keyboards and I suspect that the drummer is playing the keys because uh, 
Eleanor wasn't capable of playing those key those those keyboards because right. she, she was never really a great keyboard player. And again, that hopefully that will come out at some point or other because uh, I really like you know I really like those records and I really right. I, I, I put my heart and soul to them. And uh, but yes. Yeah, it would be a shame. Tanya Rose sessions, look them out. I will, yeah. Yeah. Listen to the backwards guitars. Listen to the guitars going through the Nesley speakers. I mean, I just did so many amazing, beautiful things on that that, you know, you can listen to that. You can listen to the Britannia Rose sessions over and over again and hear more and more stuff because I forbid. I really layered it. Right, because um, I was going to say that because some of the stuff on there, like there's well, that Wolf Kid Man, is it? Is that on there? That's what a riff yeah. that is. That is such. Yeah. <laughs> that is the yeah, riff. Yeah. Astic. But on, as I say, on the on my version, there's kind of backwards guitars and Leslie guitars and all sorts of. The riff doesn't start at the very beginning and then play all the way through. Right. Sometimes it comes halfway through. There's builds in it, you know. Did you do Can Can Summer then? Was that you? Yeah, I did Can Can Summer, yeah. That's, that sounds like five different fall songs stuck together, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, it was, it was, you know, it was an interesting time because it was the first time for the band and I was having to sort of, you know, sort of, in a funny sort of way, I was having to be the full head. Do you know what I mean? Because I think... Well, yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you did a lot more than just produce it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they. I mean, they were the first time in the studio as a band, and so what you know, band was that? What lineup was that? That's, that is the lads. That is, you know, that's, oh. that's the band that went on forever. Yeah, that, of course. You know, for whatever yeah. it is, nine years, isn't it? Nine yeah. years they did, um, or even longer than nine years. Yeah. And um, and I think, in a way, he'd done full full heads role and Ref- reformation, which. You know, sounded like they were stuck. I'm not sure how how foolish those records are because it sounds like the band aren't fitting in with the full imprint. But I thought by Imperial Wax Salt, I thought I brought it back a little yeah, bit, definitely more back. Yeah, because look, the most blind blindness though. That's a... oh, blindness is amazing. Yeah, it's where yeah. is that? Is that on Reformation? No, it's on Fall Heads Roll, isn't it? Because it's Steve Trafford who plays with us. Yeah, yeah, no, I like Steve Trafford. You know, I made that. You know, I made that record that never came out with them after Fall Ahead between oh, yeah. Heads Rock Formation. There was a great record made. You know. Well, who's got that? Who's got the tape of that then? It'll turn up. These things always turn up. Someone's got them somewhere. Well, considering some of the shit that's been released, you would think that if there's a, a properly recorded set of songs, someone would want to pull them out. Yeah, I think they're mainly instrumental from my memory of it. Ah, right. I mean, it, it wouldn't yeah. take it wouldn't take too much of a leap for someone to do like you know they did with the Doors and the American Prayer, that kind of oh, thing. Oh no, absolutely. Take take you know take Panzer 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 or something like that and do it. Yeah. I something like that with with Rex around about um, Rex. I wanted poor Rex around about. Well, you now you didn't know Rex, did you? Rex yeah, Rex. I knew him. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I knew him well. Yeah, we told him. This is Rex, Sar- Rex Sargent. We're talking about it. Know what happened? Yeah, yeah. I did a remix around about. I want to say middle class revolt. We did. We did something with some sort of discarded vocals. I've got that somewhere and put some sort. You know, it was because it was all in that dancey mode. And I, I was going over to his studio because he was living in a house that had a studio in the basement. And I'd go over there and do some stuff with him. And we did that. We took some sort of verbals that hadn't been used anything and threw them onto a dance mix 
I was, you know, I wasn't entirely happy with it, but it was fun to do. Yeah, you could see you could see someone somebody enterprising with doing it, couldn't you? It's definitely there to be yeah. done. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is definitely true with Mark with Mark's vocals. You probably. You know, you can because I was moving them around and putting them into different places at times. To uh, you know, you can do that. I, I did find that that was possible with Mark's stuff. You know, yeah, I find that amazing to be honest because that is so far removed from my experience of Mark with his vocals when I was in the band. That the, the, he took so yeah. much care over what went where, and you know, you'd have two or three vocals going. In. That was his big thing, wasn't it? Making sure that he got. I mean, sometimes you could argue there's too many words on some things. But, oh, I was, I, as I say, I always feel like he had, you know, that was the amazing thing with Mark at a certain point was you're like, oh, my God, you know, he's got so much stuff going on, particularly in the live performances. Yeah. You know, he just, he's, he's like, and you feel like he's thinking four lines ahead, but he's got like eight different improvisations in between that line and the next, you know. Well, if you listen to that album that's just come out, that is exactly that, that, that one from on, 1981. On fire. Yeah, I mean, I used to think yeah. sometimes some of the stuff he said between songs that off the top of his head were better lyrics than most bands that ever have in a million years, you know. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, as you say, there are things that... There, there, what is amazing is he kept coming up with the goods despite being, you know, it's it, the fact that he was, you know, he managed to not die earlier. Yeah. And and even despite, I mean, I think there are, you know, I think if you listen to Levitate and Are oh, You Are Missing Winner, which I know some, you know, awkward people sort of sort of say, oh, they're the greatest full albums, but I, they just sound like someone who's utterly lost, you know. And it's like it's like that big star mm-hmm. third album, you know, or, yeah. or or something like. I mean, I remember when I was younger, I loved the Sid Barrett albums, you know, and I was like. Oh, this is great! You know, he's completely fucked, and he doesn't know what's going on, and he's saying "biddle." No, I hate that. I went back and listened to those Sid Barrett albums, and they're terrifying. You know, in some respects, yeah, they're terrifying. I think they're uncomfortable listening. They're not. It's like I shouldn't be listening to this in some ways. Yeah, and I feel like that about Levitate and Are You Are Missing Winner. You know, I just feel like they're. That is what happened in, and and to some extent maybe cerebral caustic. That's what happens when there's no one helping him, and and he's in a mess, you know. Yeah. And I and I don't know. So you know, I'm again vocally, I'm a little bit. Once the growling starts, <laughs> again, he's doing so. I mean, it, it, it's it must be so hard. It must have been so hard, and you can see the agony of being the genius vocalist and, and then, you know, being this insanely great vocalist. And then, you know, it's like, I, I, I did that in 1981, but I've got to do it in 1991. I've got to do it in 2001. I've yeah. got to do it in 2011. And you feel that, you know, the whole hiding the words by growling. Yeah. And then the concertining of the words. So there's less, you know, reformation is like, you know, if, a lot of reformation is four phrases repeated over you know yeah. over and over and you're like oh god he, you know he's he's and then you're sort of thinking oh is he doing it because he can't remember the words anymore and is he having to make it simpler because he just cannot follow i did some of that you know i did i kept coming back and doing gigs and i began there were times when mark felt completely lost yeah with it back you know what i mean it, it, He's doing it early on when, when you guys are in the band, but he's kind of, it's happening some of the time, whereas later on, I mean, I understand all the genius and I still loved it and I saw gigs, you know, through the, uh, you know, 
the 2010s onwards that I loved, you know, but there were there was an element of like disguising and uh, and editing down mm. because you know it had such a body of work to live up to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he, the, the the amazing thing about that is he could have stopped, couldn't he? He could have stopped playing live. Well, I don't think. I think that people under overestimate how many records he was selling. Right. And think that he was probably living. And also, I mean, thinking about it, I was thinking about this with the real new Fool album. I was like, the amount of money he spent making it sound shit. And I was thinking. You know, he can't be making any money back. You know, he had that very odd deal with Minder Music, uh, his publishing company, which they, you know, they signed. I think oh, they right. signed. Tell us about it. <laughs> it's fun, you know. Yeah, yeah. Certainly around about the time of, uh, I think they did it around the time of Container Drivers and um, Pay Your Rates, even. So maybe yeah, we did, yeah. We did, yeah. It was a terrible deal for the band. Yeah, I, and he never got off it. He was It's always on it. And I, I think they were living... I think he needed to do the gigs to get the cash in. Right. OK. And in a way, I mean, some of the things that Mark did, you know, like never becoming computer savvy and never having a mobile phone, never learning to drive, that, you know, he began to be isolated and, and people around him that, that, that did understand those things, perhaps took advantage of that, you know, at, at times. And right. No names. <laughs> but, you know, it's a stance, again, that in some respects was valid, but also, as I say, probably I felt like he was... He should have made more money than he did. Yeah. And he should have been more comfortable than he was. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I sort of like, like to think that uh, with them lads at the end, he was happy doing that and... <laughs> And for them to last as long as he did, it must have been okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, he did refer to them as his boys, you know, they never had any kids, they were younger. Yeah. And there was an element of, like, after the show, they would often, you know, I spent nights up with him, you know, with us all together, just having a laugh, you know. Yeah. So once, mm. it, obviously, you know, people don't, I think people underestimate how concerned he was about the performance. Now, he might, out of being, you know, obviously having a drink and drug problem, I think we can safely say Mark had that, and certainly towards the end, you know, it wasn't helping him. But it was all to do with putting on a good show. He never wanted to put on a shit show. So he was wound up and worried and concerned about shows. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, the release, the serotonin release of what I've got through the show and, you know, no one's, you know, we've got the money and we're back at the hotel room and the lads are having a great time because, you know, obviously it was amazing for them. Yeah. You know, to be in this position of having, you know, played in a, to not a lot of people and people not listening to you, to suddenly play to a lot of people and to have a lot of people caring about you. It would have been, you know, it's, it was, it's a repeat of what happened with you guys. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Taken from... Yeah. A, 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 yeah. You couldn't add suddenly being like, oh, God, we're this amazing, we're this amazing band, we're part of this legend. You know, you created the legend. But they stepped into their sh- into those shoes, did a, a pretty damn good job of it. I think. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Definitely, yeah. I think there was. I think it was healthier. The lines were drawn. Where everybody knew where they stood. I think by then there wasn't any pretension of 
I mean, any idea of it being like a band in the sense that it was as much you as anybody else? I don't think they ever needed that or expected that, did they? They knew that they were working for Mark in a way, which is a healthy thing, I think. Yeah, and also I think that there was... They went into it with their eyes open. I suspect they perhaps didn't take Mark's instructions as seriously perhaps as we did (laughs) (laughs) I think we really listened to because Mark had got you know had had created this thing and we were part of this amazing thing and and we could see you know that it had gone from you know a flat a flat without a fridge to this kind of like amazing legend we we kind of followed what Mark was doing and perhaps we followed it a little bit too closely do you know do you know what I mean Steve I felt like uh, yes I do yeah 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 we were listening to it when we should have just gone, yeah, you're right, it should be more purple. And then the character, look, I'm playing it more purple. Carried on playing it like a snake. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, to be fair, he did play it very much like a snake after he had that instruction. You can hear the, you can hear the snake-like yeah. nature of the whatever it was he was playing. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's true, I think. But then... I think you can see it, you know, you can see it, there's an, uh, you know, the more I read about Beefheart, the more I realise that, you know, that, in a way that happened, you know, those last albums that, 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 that he made, you know, the band, obviously the Troutmask Replica band was starving and, you know, he was transposing songs which had three different key changes from a, a piano improvisation, improvisation that Beefheart could never do again. And then later on, they still make those great records, Ice Cream for Crow and all those things. Um, but you've got the feeling the band are like going, actually, we know what to do now. You yeah. know, you can suddenly yeah. you know, yeah. play it like a, an envelope being swallowed by a seal. But, you know, they, they, I know what to do. Yes. I, I, you know, we've got a format and I know what to do. You don't want a format, though, do you, a lot of the time? If you know what I mean. No. I, I, don't I, think, I don't think it ever became... It might be the format, but I don't think the fall ever became formulaic, did they? Well, I'm wondering if those, uh, if through the, I don't know, I felt like uh, through the maybe the last, your future act after Urzex GB, uh, what, the sublingual, is it sublingual tablet? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and new facts. I felt those had a, a similarity to them. Right. Uh, the fact, you know, obviously it's my perspective. I always think that that my version of Imperial Wax, my version of Remy, which eventually will... I think Britann- the Britannia Road Sessions is, is as close to my version of Imperial Wax Solvent as has gone out, and then my version of Remit will eventually, I'm sure, pop its head up. I think they step outside that, and I'm rather proud of the fact that, that they've done that. And, you know, I just felt like I had... You know, I just felt like... And did he ever good. give you any reasons why he changed it all? No. 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 Well, I mean, it's it, it's still pretty incredible when you think about it that a band that lasted that long, you could still talk about changing up the formula and making things. I mean, yeah, most, most bands who've lasted that long are basically just uh, well, not that there is that many bands who lasted that long, but the, the the idea of them doing something original away from the formula after that long is just it's laughable, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I, no, no, hats off to them. I always admired all three of the guys, and I've seen Imperial Wax since, and they're pretty damn hot, you know. I'd really like to see them, actually. Yeah, no, they're definitely worth a view, definitely worth a view, because they kind of, um, 
I think they, you know, I think they do a better version of what they do now as Imperial Wax than they did as the full wax, to be honest with you. Well, okay. you know. All right. Thanks for joining us for episode two of Old Brother. Episodes are released every second Wednesday, so look out for episode three. Please follow us on Twitter, at Old Brother Show, where you can subscribe via iTunes or link to Spotify, so you'll never have to miss an episode. If you feel like rating us on iTunes, that'd be lovely too, or at least tell your mates how good it was. If you're interested in hearing more from me and Steve, you might want to check out our books, The Bid Midweek and Have a Bleeding Geth, both available from Root Publishers and all good bookstores. See you back here soon, and remember, if you're driving, take your car. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.